get into this episode of Dopey on uh, Drugs, Addiction, and Dumb Shit, I just want to say that this episode is brought to you by Aloe Recovery, located in sunny Southern California in Malibu and Silver Lake. Aloe is uh, an amazing recovery center. It was created by our friend Bob Forrest and Evan Haynes and this guy Bob, and um, basically it got created because... They knew that drug addicts needed a place to go where they were going to get not only really, really high-level care, but respect and um, a feeling uh, that the people wanted them there, like that they were more than dollar signs. Uh, the staff has a combined 675 years of experience treating addiction and mental health problems. They use state-of-the-art pharmacology for their detox services, making their clients as comfortable as they can be. Amazing family program, registered nursing staff. The doctors are board-certified addictionologists. It seems like a great place to go if you are fucked and you need help. Um, I know somebody who's going, and he is very excited about going, and we're going to hear about that later today. If you guys need help and you are uh, you know, struggling with substance abuse, go check out Aloe. Their motto is connection, not control. And if that didn't convince you, their amenities include surfing, horseback riding, they have a sweat lodge, and they have sound bath meditations, whatever that is. But it sounds pretty amazing. So again, if you're fucked, go to Aloe. And tell them that Dave from Dopey sent you. And now, back to the show. Hello, and welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit, and I am Dave. Uh, When Chris and I started making this show many years ago, uh, there were two people that we really wanted to have on the show. Uh, This father and son writing team, Nick and David Sheff. Nick, of course, wrote uh, Tweak and uh, We All Fall Down, and David Sheff wrote Beautiful Boy and Clean, and after many, many years of courting David Sheff, 
right? Has it been many years? And maybe not to you. Maybe to you it's been many months. But here he is, David Chef. Welcome to the show. Yeah. Uh, well, listen, thank you. I'm so glad uh, we are talking. And uh, I don't think it's been many years, but whatever it's been, it's been too long. Um, so weird shit is what, uh, you know, I'm ready. I think I've been courting you and you haven't noticed. I think I've, I'm such a terrible uh, pursuer that you've only noticed for months. But um, okay, well maybe so. That's it. Okay, I don't have to take any responsibility. I'm, I'm cool with that. You could take responsibility for for the last couple weeks or months, but I'll take responsibility okay. for the beginning. But I'm a great fan right. of yours. I'm a great All fan right, of well, yours, and I'm very excited to have you on the show. Um, now, if you guys don't know, this movie just came out uh, a few months ago called Beautiful Boy. And, uh, and if you don't know, David, we have this podcast uh, about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit, and we have this pretty big following, and they call themselves, or we call them the Dopey Nation, and the Dopey Nation calls themselves the Dopey Nation. And they, awesome. were, they were talking about uh, the movie Beautiful Boy a lot, and uh, they were talking about how, uh, how sad it made them, or how, how uh, I guess, self-aware of the shit how they affected their parents. I bet you hear a lot of that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, I do. And it's, um, I mean, some of that's been really cool because people have said, you know, they've seen the movie, they've seen themselves in the movie, whether it was, you know, they were in the role of the father, meaning that, you know, he was watching somebody who they love, you know, addicted and in trouble, or vice versa, you know, they were, and it's not just kids, it could be brothers, sisters, parents, whatever it is who, were addicted and spiraling downward and, and becoming aware that they had an impact on their, um, you know, whoever it was, their family, their parents, whatever. Uh, but the only sort of negative thing about that is, I mean, the whole story hopefully is not about guilt. Uh, you know, addiction, you know, I guess people who uh, do become addicted, I know Nick, you know, talks a lot about how much shame he felt and how bad he felt and how guilty he felt. But, you know, looking back, I realized that, you know, he was addicted and it was not like he was, you know, any sort of morally corrupt person and the idea that guilt comes with this is unfortunate. Uh, but you know, we know that it does. Right. The guilt and the shame. Um, I went to treatment years ago. Um, the last time I was in treatment was, I want to say eight years ago now. And, uh-huh. um, I think that was Congratulations, right. Ar- by the way. Thank you. Uh, that was right around when, um, your books were coming out when beautiful boy came out. Your, I guess Beautiful Boy came out 11 years ago, and Tweak, Tweak came out around then too, right? Around yeah, the same yeah, time. Yeah, it was. Exa- yeah, exactly. And when I was in treatment, everybody was reading Tweak. You know, everybody had a copy of Tweak, and, um, which was funny. You know, everybody was either reading Tweak or Scar Tissue by the, the lead singer <laughs> of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Right. And, and um, I read both of those books while I was in there, and I was amazed with it. But I also knew of you because I was such a John Lennon fan. And, oh, man, yeah. And I knew that uh, David Chef had done, I think, the last interview, right, with John and Yoko. Yeah, I mean, it was the last big interview. They did um, a couple you know, super short radio interviews. But, yeah, I spent three weeks um, with John and Yoko while they were recording Double Fantasy and Milk and Honey, and it was 1980. Um, and, uh, you know, the interview came out like the first week of December and, um, like so many of us, you know, I was just watching TV actually and Howard Cosell was on and he interrupted the show, the, whatever it was, a football game, I guess, and said, um, you know, John Lennon had been shot and I had just spoken to them the day before and was, um, what can I say? You know, just like everybody, we were just completely horrified and shocked and it's been 
God, how many years? 80? So it's been 30 years? 40, wait, that's almost 40 years. Yeah, wow. 38 years. Are, you, were, you were with them for weeks? I didn't realize that. Yeah, I was, you know, I was just, you know, I was lucky. It was, I mean, I was only 24 years old. I got this big assignment. I was, you know, pretty psyched about it, obviously. And, um, you know, whereas now if you get to interview a celebrity, whether it's, you know, somebody in music or, or uh, TV or movies or whatever, you know, you're lucky if they give you an hour. But, you know, I walked in to the studio and met with John and Yoko and basically didn't leave them for about three weeks every single day, you know, like, you know, breakfast in the morning, coffee, whatever, going for a walk in Central Park. Um, John would get his son, Sean, who was very young at the time, get him ready to go to school. And uh, then, you know, I'd go to the studio with them and they would record and, you know, sometimes they would be working on, you know, one of the tracks that actually is on, on those two records. But John, you know, when you know, sometimes he just been sitting there in the corner playing the guitar and he sort of played this, you know, incredibly sort of plaintive, insane, intense version of Eleanor Rigby while I'm sitting there. And I'm no way. Sitting there, you know, I'm here with, you know, John Lennon, who, you know, was one of the reasons that I survived my childhood. I mean, it's not an exaggeration. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was amazing. And Eleanor sure. Rigby, and, Eleanor and Rigby, Eleanor Rigby's a, a Paul tune too, right? Yeah. Uh, well, what, what, he, what he, they did, and then one of the things that was really cool during the interview is that he would talk about the fact that, you know, some of the songs were Paul tunes and some of the songs were John tunes, but then a lot of them were a combination. And he described the way that Paul often came up with sort of a story and a, a little bit of a more poppy melody. And then John would come in and he would be the one with sort of the dark and the thoughtfulness and sort of the discord and sort of, you know, sounds. And so in that song, for instance, he said that it was Paul who did the, you know, Eleanor, I mean, Father McKenzie, whatever. Right, it was, right, right. You know, his father, actually it was supposed to be Father McCartney, but he changed the name because uh, he didn't want it to be too close to his father. But anyway, so he's the one who did that and, you know, lived in Dream Bubble. And then John's the one who came in and, with the, uh, you know, all the lonely people, where do they all? And so that right. so it was John. So it was sort of like a combination anyway. So, yeah, listening to them talk, listening to John talk about that was, it was, oh, it was just amazing. And, and the tune, you know, and the it, tune Beautiful Boy was on Double Fantasy, right? Well, that's what I was going to say, that it all connects together because that song, I watched them record it. So I was in the studio watching, you know, John record Double, uh, Beautiful Boy. And, you know, Sean Lennon, you know, his son was his beautiful boy. And then a couple of years later, uh, I had my son, Nick, and that was the song I sung to him when he went to sleep at night. And, um, and I've heard from, you know, countless other parents who've said that the same thing. I mean, that was the song they sent their, they sung, you know, to their child as they went to sleep, their beautiful boy or their beautiful girl. And, you know, the whole, I guess the whole sort of, you know, backdrop or whatever of the, book is that you know you have this innocent child um none of us think about what could happen to them and it's you know it could be anything from you know other horrors as well you know some serious illness some you know car accident whatever and, and addiction is one of them and of course i never thought about that and you know nick remain my beautiful boy even as he became addicted um and was, would disappear, and I would be, you know, out of my mind with worry, or he'd break into our house or our friends' houses, and you know, all those kinds of things. And so um, that song was 
you know, amazingly meaningful to me. I mean, it would have been even if I hadn't watched John recorded, but that added a whole, you know, a whole other dimension. I was, um, I was like the, I mean, out of, I'm a huge rock and roll fan, uh, but out of anybody in all of rock and roll, John Lennon is by far my favorite. And I grew up in Manhattan. And when I was in junior high school, me and my friends would go over the Dakota and like kind of dare each other to try to go upstairs to the apartment and tell the doorman <laughs> that we were friends with Sean. And I would always do it. You know what I mean? I would always go to the doorman and be, I was like 15 and I'd be like, yeah, I'm supposed to meet up with Sean. And we'd always almost like go in and then we'd chicken out and we'd never go in. But um, in one of the, I just want to ask a question real quick. Um, sure. when, when you were around John and Yoko, were they getting high? Like, I mean, in that Albert Grossman book, he has them as junkies. Is that was that accurate at all? He had Yoko Ono shitting in a cat box and shooting heroin all day. Was that just ridiculous, or was that what was yeah, happening? It, it, it was, you know, ridiculous and meant to sell, not meant to sell books. Uh, but you know, we're also talking about the period when I was with them, and so when I was with them in 1980, by then. Uh, you know, they cleaned up. I mean, they had used drugs. I mean, I don't know about the cat box, and John was very open about it. He had what he called his last weekend, you know, the years before I met him when he was, I mean, he talked a lot about drinking, so I don't know what else was going on. But, right. you know, he was kind of, he said he was sort of trying to kill himself. He was so miserable. And it was only after those five years, which would have been from 1975 to about 1980, that, you know, he and Yoko reunited. He cleaned up. He got, you know, he was a, uh, he was just committed to, you know, being a father, being a husband. He talked a lot about, you know, the joys of the simple joys, you know, making bread, uh, taking sure. his kid for a walk. Sure. Um, and so, you know, I, I know that there was drugs for sure. I mean, a lot of drugs in the past. I don't think they hit it. Um, so, you know, I, I also feel like, you know, people like Grossman and you know, many others really were looking for a way to get headlines. And so, sure. so much of the stuff that you've read is just completely um, sensationalized, made, made up. And some of it is you know, way exaggerated. And then when I when I read about you, because I mean, you can't read about you without you copying to the drugs that you had done as a young man. Uh, were you smoking weed with them or were you, like, would you smoke a joint with John at all or anything like that? Just yeah, out of curiosity. I didn't see uh, not one drug I, I swear to you you know for that whole time i was with them that did not mean that i was you know i was um i don't know i mean i don't even remember what i was i mean i was gonna say i would go back to my hotel and maybe just smoke a joint with my friends but um but john never did and i you know there's no reason to lie about it I mean, no i've been gone for a long time I, I it just never saw it right you know i mean i you know you're right i used um you know a lot when i was growing up and it was partly, you know, that period around after the Lennon interview that I decided, you know, here was one of the things that happened during that thing was I, you know, as I said, I admired Lennon to the point. I mean, it sounds like you too, you know, growing up, it was for me, you know, those songs really were, I lived in Arizona and it was really bleak and it was really depressing and very conservative. And I thought, you know, I was the only one who kind of thought differently than anybody else. And then I started to hear Lennon and it made me feel that I was not at least completely alone and not a complete freak. Um, but there's also just so, something about his voice and his songwriting that just, it just really just uh, touched me, you know, and his way he had this, he had this incredible exuberance and, and charisma that just sucked me in. You know, I just, I love John Lennon. Um, yeah, well, me too. and, uh, and I appreciate Anyway, uh, so all, all I was going to say about that and I'll say it really quickly. Yeah, I'm sorry. 
when, no, no, it's, it's fine. But one of the things that really hit me was, okay, here's John fucking Lennon, right? You know, he's like them beyond, you know, anything. I mean, you could never have more of an ability to create, to do sort of whatever you want in terms of your anything. You know, he had more money, he had more fame, and he was miserable. You know, he tried to kill himself on drugs and alcohol for those times, for those, that period of time. Uh, and then finally what kind of healed him was... I guess waking up, you know, part of it was just that, but also making a decision to change his life dramatically and to focus on his home and having a baby, you know, having his son, Sean, he talked about being the thing that had, you know, just changed everything for him. Once he had this child to watch out for and to raise and to be responsible for and all that kind of stuff. And um, so that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't that stupid. I was pretty stupid, but I wasn't that stupid, and I got it. You know, it's like, okay, so I, um, you know, that's a lot of the reason I decided to become a father. It was, you know, I was inspired by John. So when I did have a child, and that was Nick, and that was 1982, um, you know, that was it. I mean, I wasn't high. I wasn't using them because I was, you know, I just got it. You know, you don't want to. I wanted to be there, fully present. You know. Well, I have I have two daughters, and um, and I basically got clean because I my I have a really very very competent father. As much as I like to make fun of him, I have an incredibly great father, and I the idea of me being a junkie and having a child was just I couldn't live with it. You know, it was the right. thing that yeah. crystallized me getting clean. Um, when Nick was growing up, so you weren't like smoking too casually when Nick was growing up. You, you kind of describe it in the book like if you're at a party, you might smoke a joint instead of have a glass of wine, but it wasn't like your everything. It wasn't my everything, but I smoked a lot, and I had a lot of friends who smoked. And, uh, you know, they would come to the house, and people would get stoned. And, it, you know, we lived in San Francisco, and it was certainly not an unusual thing for people to be getting high. Um, and. You know, Nick, Nick grew up with that. I mean, he remembers it very, very clearly that it was part of our world in the way that, um, you know, in past generations, maybe it was just drinking, you know, cocktails and wine and beer or something like that. But, you know, we got, you know, we, we smoked a lot. <laughs> I did. Um, and uh, it was, you know, for years. And, and at a certain point, I did decide, you know, that it was, he wasn't, it didn't take long for me to figure it out. You know what it was? I guess I felt, he would wake up in the morning, early, you know, he was a kid, he was a baby, and he just would have this, like, excitement vibrating off of him. It was like life. And I would be, I would have been up, you know, late with my friends partying or whatever and, and you know, and smoking weed and getting, and drinking. And I never cut too much. I was never a big drinker. But anyway, and I kind of got it. And I said, you know, that's not who I want to be. I want to, you know, experience this joy and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I did stop and that was, that was the period. Right. And you were always a writer and you were always kind of engaged with the counterculture. You interviewed Zappa and David Hockney and Keith Haring, all these amazing artists. And I know that Nick, as he was coming of age, he was really drawn by these counterculture heroes. And, uh, totally. and also, the, I mean, I know in the movie it shows you surfing. I don't remember in the book if you were actually a surfer. Were you a surfer? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was something Nick and I shared for sure. Because that's um, that's a whole Steve Steve, uh, Steve Carell did not do me any um, favors. Uh, now when I go up into the lineup, I actually went to Santa Cruz about I don't know four or five days ago for the day, and um, 
you know, somebody was teasing me about it because the scene in the movie when Corral is surfing, he just looks petrified and, and from what he, told me, he, he, he was. <laughs> well, what was that like? What did you think of Steve Carell as you? Who would you? Did you pick him? Who picked him? Uh, I didn't pick him, but I was amazed by him. I mean, he's like, you know, I mean, I was like most people who really had, you know, I, I watched The Office a couple times through, you know, all eight hundred episodes, and and then his more dramatic roles like you know The Big Short, and uh, I loved him in Little Miss Sunshine and all that stuff. I mean, I knew he was an amazing actor, but. The idea of having him or anybody play me was just weird. I mean, it was too weird. And I guess I didn't understand it until I went to the set one day. Um, the producer asked me to come down, and I really didn't want to. I was sort of like, like the whole thing. And I went there, and I watched him, and he got it. You know, I mean, he, he was like, you know, actually, that's what he said when I asked him. I mean, when I met him, actually, once before that, you know, he said to me, the reason that he wanted to do this movie, he did not have drugs in his family or in his past and his kids were young but he related to the idea that you know that he was a father and he understood what it that when he read the script it was like horror and the horror was uh, that at a certain point your kids grow up and you have to let them go and you have to let them live their lives and you can't protect them forever and he said it was just you know sort of shook him to the core and that's what I think you see you know when you see him in the movie um, you see a dad who's terrified you know he's just terrified that his kid is going to die and that's of course what i lived i mean the movie is two hours and i lived it for about 10 years right right and and you're talking to somebody who put his father through it for at least 12 years you know that same exact experience and that's kind of like the only problem with the movie is it's too short you know what i mean like like you can you it's like the book you just feel it over and over and over again and your misery and fear you know and um one of my favorite things about the movie was the music and the way you see the interplay between young nick and older nick and young david and older david and like Mm -hmm. and how you had to go through it i thought that was done really well and just seeing you know nick's loneliness emerge and then you realizing it and i think in the book Um, you know, the most interesting thing was your attachment to Nick and, and and towards the end of it, you sort of acknowledge it as a codependency. Like how difficult was that for you just to acknowledge it? You know, I guess it's, it was really hard. I mean, it was obviously harder to live it than it was to look back and to write about it and then to watch it in the movie. I mean, it's all pretty surreal once, you know, it's like somebody said it was like, my life cubed when the movie came out because I'd lived it and then I'd written about it and then here it was again. But, um, you know, that whole line that about what is codependency and what is enabling, and I mean, that's something I struggled with for years, you know, and the thing that kind of killed me. Actually, you know what? There are some scenes of the movie that um, are, like, devastating, of course, you know, watching the kid, Nick, you know, Timmy Chalamet, who plays Nick, um, watching him shoot drugs is, is like horrific and learning how to shoot them by going online and doing all these things that were just, you know, terrifying. But the part of the scene in the movie that was the hardest for me to watch is the scene when Nick was out in the streets, the boys out in the streets and he's, um, been, he's been gone. And so all the dad, me, Corral, again, it's all confused, weird, but, um, all we want or I wanted was, you know, was Nick to be okay. And he called that time and this was after years and he called and he said, um, you know, dad, I want to come home. And I said, 
I'll pick you up and take you to rehab, but you know, that's it. And he said, I'm not going back to rehab. I've done that. I've been there. It doesn't work for me. And so I said, well, Nick, you know, call me when you're ready to go into treatment. And, and, uh, I hung up and it broke my heart. And, and, you know, some of the movie is fictional and, you know, sort of creative license, but that scene was exactly what happened. And when I watched it in the movie again, I realized, first of all, how lucky we were because, you know, Nick did decide to get himself into treatment again, um, very quickly after that. But the horror of it for me is now, you know, once beautiful boy, the book came out, um, I've just, you know, connected with so many people who are suffering, you know, parents, kids, everybody. I hear, you know, I get letters from, you know, Twitter, private messages all the time and, you know, daily, you know, many. And some of them are just, you know, the saddest stories in the world because it's about people who didn't make it. And the stories that kind of chill me to the bone are ones where, like a dad called me up and said, um, I went to all these rehabs and I kept, I went to Al-Anon meetings and they kept telling me, you know, you have to let your kid go. You can't help them. And so he said, I did it. You know, I shut the door. I wouldn't answer the phone. I, uh, and then my son went out that night and overdosed and died. Um, and he said to me, you know, was that tough? En- you know, was my love tough enough? I mean, um, wow. you know, so, so then I look at that thing in the movie and I think, oh my God, I hope people don't understand, don't get the message that that's the way to you know to face this when you've got somebody you love who's who's out there using well i think that the saddest and hardest part about it is there is no way you know what i mean you do not know what you're going to do how it's going to play itself out my parents uh didn't like al-anon but they wound up going to something called families anonymous in manhattan and they mm-hmm. and they wound up getting like they wound up getting into like this weird gay square dancing group called the Times Squares, and they just basically were like, "Leave him alone," you know, about me. Let let him do what he's going to do. And I still went on, you know, for many yeah. many years. Uh, and yeah. I was just lucky I didn't die. And I think I was also lucky that it wasn't this fentanyl around because as I'm reading your book. Um, and like I think it's weird my favorite part of the book is the ridiculous pain at the end where you're yeah. just so angry uh, at yeah. Nick and you're angry at yourself for participating right. in his recovery and it's fucking pissing you off and yeah. um, and I and I just could feel it and um, you know my my friend uh, just died over the summer from this thing and oh, um, so and sorry. like and he was my partner on this show and and somehow i'm i'm reading your book and all of a sudden it popped in my head in the middle of the summer his girlfriend called me up to tell me that chris had overdosed and died and i wasn't sitting by the phone like you were i had no idea what was happening and i didn't believe her you know and it was just like it just conjured up this memory this incredibly visceral memory out of nothing you know yeah. and um i think oh, it's man, I'm, so, I'm sorry about it oh my god so that was chris who you were talking about earlier yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um oh, my god. and him and i had met in treatment and uh, and we started this podcast to kind of tell funny drug stories you know and we were both in recovery and we loved laughing at the stupidest shit we did and um and and it, and it wound up helping a lot of people and it wound up being a really fun way for us to li- you know what i mean have a hobby that was giving back yeah. it was it was yeah. creative it was service it was everything uh but yeah, chris sure. wound up relapsing and not being honest about it um you you were sitting by the phone waiting for that phone call. Yeah, for years. 
you know, and it's not like, unlike a lot of other parents or, again, I never said parents because that was me, but it's, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a parent, if you are it's your wife or your husband or your partner or your, you know, whoever it is. And yeah, we do. I mean, we wait by the phone. I mean, that's a, uh, uh, you know, they tell you not to do that. They tell you to move on with your life. They tell you not to, you know, you can't control it and all that stuff. And yeah, you can't control it, but you also can't control being worried about somebody that you love. And so, yeah, I spent, you know, I spent years in that state of, um, I don't know what the, just, complete and utter I was freaked out for years I mean that's what it is I was I was completely freaked out and crazy and because I, I was worried that whole time like you said you know I was waiting for that phone call that somebody you know was going to tell me that Nick didn't make it you know and and you know as I said he almost didn't so I mean there were times when you know he overdosed and he was in the emergency room twice and there was a time when he almost lost his arm because his um, arm had become infected because he was shooting a so, um, uh, you know, that, that constant state of worry, I know it really well. And, you know, when I see other people going through it, it just breaks my heart because I know that that's just hell. Yeah, totally. Um, and Chris obviously wasn't my kid. He was my friend. And I was like, I had no idea it was happening. So it's not, it's not that similar a scenario. I just, for some reason, it conjured the feeling in me. And I just wanted to yeah. share it with you. Um, well, I, get, I mean, I get it. And it also doesn't matter if you know or not. I mean, if you know. I mean, the details were, I didn't know when I read his book, and then when I, you know, well, mostly when I read his book, I saw, I didn't know a lot of the shit that happened, but it didn't matter, because I knew that he was in trouble. I guess you, it's different, like you said, knowing that he didn't, you did not knowing that he relapsed, um, but that happened to me, too, because, you know, one of the things that Nick did was, like, I think everybody who's in that situation, um, they are pretty good at deception because they don't want people to know because they don't want to stop and they don't want to be confronted. So there were you know, time, many times that people relapsed and I just didn't know for a really long time. Well, you, you talk about in the book uh, about how addiction is very much the liar's disease, which I love yeah. that. And it's the truth. You know, we all learned how to lie like fucking motherfuckers, like Miles Davis can play the trumpet, drunkies can fucking lie. And... Um, and so it made me wonder, because, like, I, I really did, because I know how much you love Nick. It's obvious, yeah. you know, from all this stuff. But my favorite stuff was the anger, because the anger was so obviously the counterpoint to the love. And it, it yeah. made, me, made me very curious what it was like reading Tweak. Like, were you half, like, amazed at how good it was, but half ridiculously angry that he was living like that? Or what was the experience? Uh... Both of those, for sure, but the most, the biggest emotion, I think, was just um, devastation, because as bad as things got, I didn't know they were that bad. I mean, I didn't know that he um, that he was in some, you know, was in situations where he could have died so many times. I didn't know that he was, you know, hanging out with drug dealers who were, um, you know, were carrying guns, and one guy, I actually don't remember if this was in Tweak or just a story he told me, but one guy who was... Um, had a crossbow and was completely paranoid on meth. I mean, so, so, so when I read Tweak, um, just to realize how bad it was for him and how much he suffered, that was the hardest part for sure. I was, you know, I was in tears. I could barely get through two pages and then I'd have to stop for a while. Right. And, and I think, um, and, and we all fall down Nick's second book that takes place after you and him went on the publicity tour, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, you know, you said, you know, not knowing, 
that your friend relapsed. Well, I didn't know Nick relapsed, but he relapsed, you know, then, you know, our books had come out. He was, he was going around, you know, talking about recovery and he'd relapsed. What he, what he said was that, um, he was at, his mom took him to a, like a party of her friends or something like that. And he said he was kind of nervous. And so he went to the bathroom and he said, like, you know, like many people who are addicted do is he looked in the medicine cabinet almost, you know, like by, I don't know, almost automatically without even thinking about it. And there was a bottle of Vicodin and he took a half. He said, oh, this will, you know, get me through tonight. It'll sort of even me out. And then he took another half and he came back and pretty soon, you know, he took the bottle. But the cool thing about that, you know, is that it did not take him, you know, being arrested or overdosing again. Uh, what happened was he called me up and he said, you can't believe what I did. Um, and he got himself in treatment that time. So, you know, yeah, he, you know, he relapsed again, but, um, you know, there are all these cliches that come in recovery and, and some of them are, I like, and some of them, you know, I feel like are kind of almost dangerous, but, you know, progress, not perfection, I think is one that really is useful. And so the idea that he could progress to the point where they could recognize right. that he was, um, yeah, that he was in trouble, you know, so. Well, one, that's another amazing thing about Beautiful Boy, the book, is the research that you did and, and how it really comes out everywhere in that book, like talking about each stage of an addict's uh, recovery and the percentage of their likelihood to get better. And, and right. I, think, I think one of the phrases that maybe you would consider as dangerous is that relapse is a part of recovery. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. And I kept hearing it, and I believed it, and I... You know, and I didn't know until later a lot of the stuff that, you know, that uh, both, first of all, relapse isn't part of recovery. I met a lot of, uh, necessarily, I met people who, they got clean once and they stayed sober. But then also, um, you know, a lot of times people relapse because they got really shitty treatment, you know? And so it's like, is is it part of what it means to get sober? Is it part of being an addict addicted but um or is it part of the fact that you know part is part of the reason that people you know so many people don't get good treatment and uh and that to me is um that's another you know dangerous message in fact that's i said the, the only really thing i that kind of broke my heart watch oh there's a million things watching the movie but that's another thing that they repeat you know steve carell says it and i think you know the the dad does what i did you know i'm a journalist i, I was doing research to try to figure out what was going on with nick and he, um, so I ended up in the, you know, research laboratories at UCLA where they were studying meth, which was, you know, the drug that Nick used most and sort of took him down the quickest. Um, and um, I heard it there too. And so in the movie, he says that too. And again, you know, I, it's, it can be true for sure. And in some ways it's reassuring, I think, to somebody who is going through it because you realize that that doesn't mean that it's you're, you failed. It doesn't mean that you know, that you're going to die. It means that, you know, it can be part of this disease and hopefully, you know, it's time to get back and figure out what's going on and, and get help. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's tricky. Like every, like you said, actually you, you nailed it before, which is to say that, you know, there aren't easy answers. It's complicated. It's, um, you know, it's, they always talk about another cliche about the baffling 
disease, and it is. Well, it is, and and I think like if you didn't say relapse is part of recovery, you would just say you're fucked if you relapse, and it's like what good exactly. does that do? You know what I mean? Yeah, you might as exactly. well put a nice spin on it, you know. Um, well, and I think it's and it's true, you know, and it does help a lot of people. I think that whole idea.
you know that's true and i thought that was really deep as a father you know when obviously it wasn't your fault you know uh, but but it was your Nick was your boy, you know what I mean? Your right. creation, yeah. and, and you did, and like and like everything that's antithetical to parenting. Mean like t- this, tonight, I was helping my daughter with math homework with multiplication, and she didn't memorize the multiplication, and she wants me to do it for her, and I <laughs> and I want to help her, you know what yeah. I mean? But to help yeah. her is not to help her. You know, exactly. it's that thing. It's it's really it's, fascinating, and that yeah, it's fascinating. It's really it's so hard to be a parent. You know, I mean, no matter what happens, I mean, nobody has it. You know, easy. There's always stuff that's always challenging, and it's great. As you know, we can have it's amazing, but it also is hard. Right, 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 right. So now you and Nick just wrote this book called High, which is everything you need. It's it's everything to know about drugs, addiction, and recovery. Yeah. So, not not you know, drugs, so. addiction, and dumb shit. Drugs, addiction, and recovery is your book. Yeah, well, drugs, addiction, I can't remember what it says. Drugs, alcohol, and addiction. And yeah, you know, the, the reason that we did that book was specifically for kids because – you know, we talked to so many kids who just were so confused because it's a really hard time. You know, they hear about this addiction stuff. Well, they also hear about, you know, oh, you can't get addicted to pot. You know, alcohol, they don't believe alcohol is addictive, you know. And so what's the truth? You know, what's the truth about um, what is addiction? You know, what's going on? What's the, you know, what about pills? You know, people think, a lot of kids think that, well, they're prescription medications, so they can't be that dangerous. Um, but, you know, we all know that they can. They can kill you just like... Um, like just like, uh, like heroin, you know, heroin. Like fentanyl. Can, yeah. Yeah. And it leads a lot of people to heroin and fentanyl and stuff like that. So anyway, um, to try to, you know, explain what's going on to kids. We, we talked about that. We, we decided to do that book. And then we also, besides talking about, you know, sort of what is going on in the brain, what's, you know, what is, um, you know, about different drugs and some of those, you know, myths that I was just describing, um, the other thing is to really talk about sort of things that are broader than drugs, which is, you know, which were sort of about um, stress, you know, because a lot of you kids use, they, they say this in surveys, you know, the reason that they say they use is not because it's fun, but because they're really stressed out. Kind of like when, you know, when parents sometimes will come home and say, God, what a day, I need a drink, you know. Sure. You know, it works. And so anyway, so, so yeah, the whole point there was to try to have a conversation with kids and really... Um, Hopefully not to just, you know, do what was in the past. I mean, hope, I mean, we really made a big effort not to be, le- the, you know, the, the, another sort of voice lecturing at kids. It was more about this is how, you know, this is, uh, we tell, Nick tells a lot about his own story. And what I hear from kids is that they relate, even if they haven't used drugs, you know, Nick talks about being just so like alien, feeling like an alien in school growing up and stuff. And that, you know, when he finally got high, that took that horror away for a while uh, and so part of it is you know kids who are this business for young kids who are like in middle school you know rebat and they may have not use drugs and maybe you know, have no intention of using drugs but in many cases um, they relate to that whole thing it's like yeah i feel like an alien too so um yeah that one's that one's what you know sort of the most recent thing nick and i did which is very cool, uh, but, I think. I mean, I hope. What I think is so funny, and, and, and you might feel guilty about it, but there's a scene in the book and a scene in the movie where, like, Nick is using, and he's, but you don't really know he's using, and uh, he busts out the joint, 
and he gets you to smoke the joint with him uh, mm-hmm. when he's on his way to college or after high school or whatever, whatever the, yeah. the moment actually was. I don't remember. But like, so that was like a moment that you felt guilty about. But yeah. but here we have come full circle, and now you're writing a book about addiction with him. Like, it, it must be. Do you guys ever laugh about that? Is is there ever like could could you? We never saw this coming. Like, what's the dialogue between you guys about this stuff now? Um, we laugh about it. It's hard to laugh about it because it was just you know so hard, as you know. But I guess we definitely talk about how. I don't know what's the word, just how lucky we are. That's the thing over and over again. You know, we meet people, you know, we go out and we talk together at schools or at, you know, at family and gatherings of families and communities all over the country and everything. And so many of them, as I said before, you know, stories of people who've lost people in their lives, parents who've lost their kids. And so we feel really lucky. And I guess the thing about the movie that Nick said, uh, separate from me, I mean, in other words, we, it's not like a, We've both said it and both felt it, and then we have talked about it, which was just, once again, this reminder of how lucky we are. Because, you know, 10 years later, it's easy to put it out of your mind. It's like, um, yeah, it's kind of like becomes a story. Uh, sometimes I think if, you know, if you go to like AA meetings or Al-Anon meetings, you hear people tell, talk about their years using, and it feels like there's a detachment from the emotion because it is it does become a story if you tell it enough times. Right. And the movie, when we sat there and we kind of walked out of there, like trembling you know it was a reminder that no you know this wasn't just a story this was our lives and we almost didn't make it you know so i mean he didn't he almost didn't make it and of course that meant you know me too because you know if you got a kid who doesn't make it i mean i see these parents and obviously it just devastates them and you know they're incredibly brave in many cases because i meet them and they've you know sort of gotten together and connected with other parents who've lost their kids and started organizations to try to save other kids lives yeah, I mean it's it's nuts like that that whole uh experience. And like our our little corner of the addiction universe is like a whole different philosophy and like I've read a bunch of stuff where you I mean like you you wouldn't like dopey on paper, but it does something to to like take away the stigma of being an addict and and and, and it adds why, camaraderie why and recovery. Why would I like it? Because like the idea was to tell like to laugh about the stupidest shit we did high to tell the worst drug stories and kind of laugh like we survived you know what i mean like haha yeah, like but i don't think i don't think that's a bad thing i mean i think it i mean i don't know why it was a bad thing i mean it is your lives it's just like us telling our story i guess and you gotta laugh at shit i mean if you can laugh at it you know that's a i think it's probably a healthy thing but i guess the only downside of that is that you do hear People talk about, you know, going to AA meetings and they have, you know, they, people do what they call drunk alongs and they tell about, you know, the horror stories or how it was so fun. I mean, it wasn't so fun. It was, I was so wasted. I almost died. And then I jumped off a building and then I shot up some heroin and then I didn't know where I woke up in another city, you know, and it's not that funny, the reality, even though I get it, you know, so I'm, I don't, I don't want to sound like it's some sort of big moral thing. It's just a, a take of, you know, it, it's, I, I think. You know, I, I, I just feel like there's no one way to be involved in this. There's no one way to get sober. There's no one way to, you know, to, to... I would never tell anybody who's in recovery that they're doing it wrong or they're doing anything wrong. I mean, totally. whatever works. And if it's fun, I mean, if you can make some light of it, then hell, why not? I mean, well, suffered it. You know, there, there was 12 years, you said, you know, 
you've suffered. So you deserve you deserve some uh, respite there. And and just being around uh, active addiction, it's always going to be a suffering. You know, over the yeah. summer, my friend Chris died. Right before he died, my, my one of my oldest best friends died. So I lost two of my best friends this summer, and and I hear uh, about people dying constantly and it only makes me want to make dopey as fun as possible because it's like i have more fun in recovery than i used to have getting high because i can do things that i couldn't do then and i know it's corny to i think if i was me getting high listening i would be intrigued but i'd also be like that dude's full of shit but it's the truth you know what i mean yeah Um, well i do i do and i get that and i i totally i mean you're 100 percent right with that also i mean nick talked about that too that he didn't because he, you know, spent his childhood or his teenage years um, getting high. He said that you know he didn't know that you could do anything. You could have fun being high, and that was one of the challenges. And I hear that from a lot of kids. You know, it's like they they're they can't imagine. You know, Nick was just the other day he was talking to somebody who was saying that he went out with some friends and he said he did karaoke, and he said that you know when he was. He never, ever, ever, ever could have done that before unless he was drunk. And he said the idea that he could do it not drunk was, it just made him so happy. Right. Um, It's super cool. Um, Yeah. Thank you so much. I was going to say, I I do have to to go, but I I love talking to you. I'm glad we got to do it. And I'm so sorry it took so long, but I... It was awesome, and I hope we can do it again. No, it was worth it, and I really, really appreciate your time, and I, and I loved your stuff. And you should tell Nick to come on. We'd love to have him on. The, I will tell him. I'm going to see him tomorrow, actually. I'm going down to L.A. where he lives. Yeah, our, our, our listeners are crazy for him. So, um, yeah. Anyway, David, thank you so much for your time, man. It was awesome to talk to you. You too. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. So after many years Many messages, many emails, we finally get David Chef on Dopey. And uh, it's incredibly satisfying to me. Uh, I've been reading his book and Nick Chef's books since uh, I was last time I was fucked up and in rehab. So it just means something to me. And I have to assume that to be the father of a drug addict must be an incredibly difficult thing to be, especially one like Nick Chef, because Nick Chef used everything and he just kept fucking relapsing. Um, I know that my dad definitely had a rough time with me, and uh, and he still does to a point. I mean, he he takes great pride in my recovery, and we spend a ton of time together. But lately, um, I've been super run down. I've been killing myself to make the show and to support the family and to work on various projects. And my dad shows up, and he's like, you don't look so good. And I'm just like, ugh. When my dad says, you don't look so good, I just want to kill him. He says, uh... And then he says, are you okay? You look run down. You look tired. And what he's saying is, it looks like you're using. When my dad says that, it just, it it makes me furious. It doesn't break my heart. It doesn't make me think. It doesn't make me have empathy for him. It makes me furious. And um, I remember when I asked Chris if he was using, that he got furious. And everybody said, when a drug addict in recovery gets furious, when they're a being accused of doing drugs, they're probably doing drugs. So I need to quickly backpedal and pause and uh, and give my dad some empathy. But that's, you know, that's what David Chef reminds me of. We're going to try to get my dad on the show today to um, to check in and see his experience around that. But now we have a very special treat, member of the Dopey Nation, 
Louisiana tugboat mate, Mr. Whitey Tidies himself, Jeremy Turner. What's happening? Hey man, what's going on? How's it going? Look at that, you're on Dopey. Isn't that exciting? Yeah, man. <laughs> Golly, finally. Yeah, man. Appreciate it. Appreciate being on here. Yeah. No, you and I have been in touch for a long time, and um, and basically some big shit is going on. Why don't you just tell the story, you know, as best you can? Yeah. Like, like, what's going on? Well, uh, December I had a, a pretty severe relapse, and. Got into, uh, you know, some minor legal issues. And so I kind of did what I always do and pull up my bootstraps and go back to work and try to, you know, patch holes. And uh, and, and I, I just knew for a long time that, you know, these patches ain't going to work. I got to do a complete overhaul. So so what I did was I went back to work until I got the insurance. And uh, and if you guys don't know, Jeremy works, you work on a tugboat on the river, right? Right, Mr. River. Yeah, we push on uh, like grain, grain barges down to uh, to the ocean. So, yeah. So you you when you get back on the boat, were you high in the first place? Um, about two years ago, I stopped getting high on the boat. Now that doesn't mean when I would go home, I would get I'd get really high. So, because if I, when I stopped using at work, my using at home increased dramatically. So I would get on dirty, pretty dirty. And then, you know, I would kind of shake back for the however long I was staying, 30, 40 days. I know this is not like on the path of this story, but why Uh, did you stop getting high on the boat? Well, um, it was kind of a promotion. You know, the boat that I got onto, the first one, um, was like a party boat. You know, we didn't pass Memphis on the river without dropping the, uh, the little skiff to go get heroin. I mean, we were we were wild. And then they kind of cleaned house. And I got I was I got an opportunity to, to be a mate, and the captain sat down with me and said, "Look, you're not going to get this position unless you stop doing all drugs out here. I want a clean boat." So I I made that commitment and I stopped doing it. And I had one slip in in uh, in two years, but you know you're right. When I get back, I'm usually I'm hot. So <clears throat> so you come back from the relapse, you get on the boat, and what happens? Okay, so. Um, and then I just grind it out and uh, just wait for the insurance because it took 90 days for the insurance to kick back in. And um, a couple of weeks ago, I started talking to Allo about going there, seeing if uh, you know, there was an opportunity for me to go there. But what made you decide to go to treatment at all? Because you've been running around for years, yeah. you know, trying to, to do different things, geographic moves, going to meetings, trying different uh, things out, recommitting. And um, so, like, what's different this time? Like, what was it about this relapse or where you are in your life or whatever that you're going to yeah. go to a different state to, to check in? Because you haven't gone to a long-term facility. When's the last time you did that? Uh, well, uh, I, I've done a long-term facility. It's probably been several, several months. And, uh, I mean, several years. Yeah. I, I went to a place called Centicor in Baton Rouge, and it's, it's like uh, – you know, you work, and it's not really a rehab. I think that's where that's where Jed went, right, from church yeah, and other yeah. drugs. Yeah, he told the story. You're right. Yeah, my monitor on my email is uh, split T, uh, which is if you leave the program, they they that's what they call you as a split T. So, um, but yeah, it's been years. I haven't been. To, I went to actually a 28 day facility about 10 years ago, and I had seven months clean with my dad. He died of an overdose, and I relapsed then. So, yeah, it's been about 10 years. All right. So, what makes you want to do it now? Well, man, 
you know, Mike, I'm, I'm starting to scare myself, you know, I'm, I'm using a lot. I mean, it's, I mean, I don't even measure anything out. I'm just, I'm just going till I can't go anymore. My health is starting to deteriorate. I'm not getting any younger. And, uh, man, I just got so much I want to do. I mean, I, I want to play music. And I don't know anything. I'm, I'm capable of anything. And I just see, I see myself wasting a lot of time, man, doing the same stuff over and over. And it's frustrating. And, and, um, I just can't do it anymore. I really can't. So it's exciting. I mean, and you, and, and you were just, were you shooting meth or smoking it? What were you doing? What was the deal? No, I would ingest it. I just eat it. You'd eat the meth. Yeah, yeah, eat it or I plug it. <laughs> really, you put up your butt. <laughs> yeah, I had no yeah, idea, dude. It hits you quick, for real. So, yeah, wait, so out of every way you you did meth, putting it up your butt was your favorite? It wasn't my favorite necessarily. I mean, okay, the the intense high of it, yes, definitely, definitely. Um. But yeah, I mean, none of it's good. Really. It doesn't matter. Wait, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. What was the first time that you okay. decided to stick the meth up your butt? <laughs> it was about three years ago, and I was with a girl, and that was her primary way. That's the only way she would do it. And I was shooting it, and she uh, she said uh, she told me it was it was more intense, and so I said, "Well, I'll try anything once." So. So I kind of migrated to that because I, I can't shoot up no more, man. It kind of, I don't know, it kind of sickens me to, to shoot up now. I, I don't like doing it. So it sickens you. Mm-hmm. You know what, Jeremy? Hold on, hold on. Yeah, go ahead. So uh-huh. you're saying years ago you would inject meth and right. your girlfriend was like, fuck that shit, stick it up your <laughs> butt, it's more powerful. And, Correct. and yes. you found that to be the case. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it was definitely mm-hmm. amazing, and, and like now needles kind of skeeve you out, and and the butt thing is working, and like well, needles, needles always did that to me. Though I, I never really liked shooting up because uh, it's just I, I, I always thought it was kind of gross. So well, it is gross, you know. Yeah. I, I what I liked about shooting up was yeah. I, I liked the science fiction of it that yeah. that you're mixing this this whatever this mixture with your blood and you have this apparatus and you're shooting it back into yourself and then you're changed like the super fantastic thing of it like you know what i mean i always love that aspect of it Uh, well until you miss and then it's a nightmare what method is you know it's so painful yeah i used to shoot meth it's it's very painful and gross yeah Exactly, <laughs> but yeah. So when you're sticking yeah. the when you're sticking meth up your butt, <laughs> you're doing it with like a piece of glass, like a piece of the crystal. Like how does it, or do you crush what, it up? What do you do? Well, I mean, you you can take a syringe and you cut the needle off completely, where it's just like a little spout, and then you just you're uh, squirting the liquid up your butt. You're squirting the liquid right in your rectum. Correct. That's correct. <laughs> I can't believe I never heard of this until now. I must be like an innocent. I'm like a babe and, in the woods in this world. There you are. Anyway, more importantly, though, you you want recovery. You don't want to shoot fucking meth water into your asshole anymore. Do you want recovery now, right? Man, I want life, dude. I want to, man, I want to freaking hang out with people and and be a, you know, because 
dude, I'm not even, I'm not, you know, I work on a boat, so when I come home, I don't really have friends or people I hang out with. I mean, I have no social life. So, I mean, it's, and I got out of jail four years ago. I have had no social life since, what, 2011 I went to jail? Right. I mean, dude, I'm 40 years old, man. I'm not, I'm not getting any younger. How much do you think turning 40 affected you like that, like psychologically? Maybe not so much for it, yeah, it did a little bit, but I think when I got eight years, when I was 32 and I got eight years, and I said, Man, that's the rest of my 30s. That's when it, you know, I said, Man, I just effed the, the last part of my, you know, the prime of my life. I'm fucking in jail, you know? I mean, it just, and it still didn't stop me, you know? It really didn't. Well, so. if it makes you feel any better, I basically wasted the prime of my life too. So for yeah. whatever, whatever that's worth, a lot of us do. And then you right. get out and you find that the prime of your life is something different. Right. Yeah, definitely. You know what I mean? Like, so, so how long has it been since you, uh, you put meth up your butt? <laughs> yesterday? Oh my God. Was it yesterday? Yeah, man. So yesterday was the final day. Right. Yeah. And wh- where you were at home? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And were you alone? Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, man. I don't, dude, I'm I'm an isolator, dude. I isolate. I don't have nobody around. Yeah, it's not that joyful. I'm sure. No, man, it's terrible. It's terrible. I don't even, I, dude. I sit in my room and think about why, why, what is so attractive about this that I keep doing it. But I'm just like, uh, I don't know. What do you it's, come up with? I come up with. That something's fucked in my head, man. I've I've gone, you know. I just I just hadn't removed myself from it long enough, man. I just hadn't put one hundred percent into it because, you know, I didn't want recovery till about I'm gonna say a year and a half, two years ago, is when I really started. That's when I started listening to you know I started listening to recovery podcasts. I found Dopey last year, and um, you know I'm like you. I I was listening to a lot of audio on Howard and stuff. So uh, yeah. Yeah. Fucking yeah. What was I going to ask you um, I think most Most importantly Like yeah. You're going to go to this place You're going to meet A ton of new people You're right. going to feel Uncomfortable And you might yeah. get Freaked out oh, you, yeah. you need to just Fucking Whatever you do Don't react Right Don't yeah. fucking Run away From it Because like you, You've done a, a lot of work And a lot of like Brave fucking work to, to get yourself to go halfway across the country and try right. something different because you want to change your life. There's going to yeah. be so many things there that make yeah. you not want to do it and not want right. to stay. Don't yeah. succumb to those thoughts. Just fucking stay no matter yeah. what. No matter right. what, you just fucking stick it out. Even if somebody fucks you over or if somebody talks shit or if right. anything goes wrong, you say, fuck it, I'm going to stay no matter what. Dave, I'm gonna be in Malibu, bro. <laughs> I mean, really? Is that not a? That's a dream, isn't it? I mean, it's crazy. I would, I would lower all your expectations. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I know, I know what you're saying, man. I, I do because uh, you have a dream. I mean, like, dude, well, I, you know what I it's mean? It's gonna be hard work. I know. It, I, I understand it. I mean, you gotta understand, man. I go on a boat. I come home and get high for two or three weeks, and I go back on a boat and do what I call the 28 day shake back, you know, and, and I've gotten so used to doing that, that it's, you know, it doesn't bother me anymore. Right. It's, um, so 
that's why I think I need a little more time than normal. I think you need the time too. I'm just saying, yeah. and when I say hedge your expectations, that's just my yeah. personal philosophy about anything. Right. If oh, I yeah. if I get an idea that something's going to be a certain way, and right. I'm scared, I don't want to be disappointed if it's not. I want right. to I want to expect the worst and 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 hope for the best because if something fucking is terrible. I don't want to be like, I thought this was going to be the time of my life or I thought this was going to be perfect, especially in your situation, because that's something that like addicts do that we can do to set ourselves up to fail. You know, like we set up a fantasy that can't possibly be, you can't be actualized. And then that little thing in your head is like, well, sticking the fucking meth up my butt, you know what that's going to be like. You know what I mean? So like, I always say, hedge your fucking expectations just to be safe. Just as a, yep. as a safety protocol, you know? But, you know, Dave, uh, the mental exercise I've done uh, to prepare for this, and I think I said this before we started recording, was I have had to accept 100% that I'm changing everything. Like, I, I knew I wasn't ready. That's why I didn't even bother going. Remember when I was talking to you in December, and you were like, man, go to treatment. I'm like, I don't want to go to treatment because I knew I wasn't ready. Right. You have to, there's a certain, like, uh, sweet spot when you're in your active addiction there's a sweet spot to go to recovery you got to be able to receive it man and there's a certain point you're not ready to receive that shit i am so goddamn ready right now man it's crazy it's, it's insane no i know what you um, mean i know exactly i'm ready what you mean. so well i'm psyched for you and um i am too man i'm happy i'm so i'm so relieved man god i can't wait to get on the plane and what's what's the protocol out there? How like what are the rules like? Like what are you allowed to do? What aren't you allowed to do? Who are you going to stay with? What's going to happen? I think there's three treatment houses, and I don't know if they're different phases or if it's. I, I don't really know the gist of it. Um, I, I know that after after a certain period, they can give you your phone back and let you you know do social media and stuff like that. Uh, so I think they're a little different. They have a uh, chef and. I don't really know much about it right now. I know so. that they offer sound bath uh, therapy, and they have equine okay. therapy, and some sort of oh, wow. surfing thing, and all this sort of oh, fucking wow. cool shit. Because Aloe yeah. is like is now our big sponsor, so like I'm psyched yeah, that yeah. you're going. It better be dude. good. If it's not good, we're fucked. Well, man, <laughs> oh, you gotta lie. <laughs> I'm, gonna report, I'm gonna report back to you. <laughs> if it's no good, you have to lie about it, so <laughs> we can still make our money. Well, I'm t- yeah, I'm telling you, man. Well, I listen to Bob. I tell you what, Bob Forrest has a uh, podcast he did don't die if you go back anybody listen to the one on christmas eve and and it's so moving it was one of them podcasts that i listened to three times because i was like man this dude is talking to me and a lot of the things that he was frustrated with about the uh the you know uh places uh treatment centers is uh his frustrations were my frustrations so um this place was for me it was meant to be um I'm grateful that I got in. No, and I love Bob, and uh, and those guys have been only cool with with me and with Dopey. Yeah, I right. just also want you to like be okay with fucking giving the phone up, you know? Right. Fucking, oh, I am. Put, man, I, I was I was ready to do it the whole time. I didn't care, man. Right, right. Look, I'm ready. Put social care. media on hold. Put all that shit on Fuck hold, it. and get yeah. in your body and be you. Yeah. And it's a fucking amazing opportunity. And oh, like. Man. And uh, and I'm just happy for you, and uh, and I'm happy, you know, that uh, you get an opportunity to go to California, and you get an opportunity to like actualize some recovery and to change your life. It's fucking cool right. as hell, you know. No, it's exciting. It I, is. I want you to tell the violin story, but maybe now is not the time. <laughs> I can tell it. It's a little convoluted, but. <laughs> 
Is it too crazy to tell her? Or you want to tell it? No, no, I can, I can kind of sum it up. Uh, when I went to college at South uh, Southeastern Louisiana um, University, I, I started learning how to play piano. I brought my guitar in one of those little piano rooms, and I taught myself chords on the piano. So I, I took Adderall at the time, and I taught myself how to play piano. So if you fast forward. A crack, a crack addiction and seven years later I'm at LSU doing the same thing but I wasn't going to LSU right I was just I was in a halfway house doing a drug treatment like a little drug treatment place and I started getting high at this uh, halfway house and I had nothing to do during the day and I didn't have a car so I would just walk to LSU with my book sack and go in the little practice rooms and just play piano I just get spun out and play piano yeah and so there was this girl, she was teaching me some, some things. She worked with me, and she uh, she told me one day, she said, there's this theater downstairs, and uh, they got this big grand piano, and it sounds so beautiful, and she, you know, she really hyped it up. I said, okay. So one night, I was spun out. and um, Jeremy, are you a good piano player? No, not really. I mean, I know how to play chords. I can I do all right, you know? Yeah, okay. Uh, I'm with I'm you. No Paul, I'm no Paul McCartney, but uh, um, I went down to the theater, and they were refurbishing the theater. Okay, and I had just got in the car, and they had tools. They had a bunch of tools all over the place. I mean, it was bags and bags of tools, and so I stole all the tools out of there, and um, and that was I hit them that time. So a couple months later, I said, "Man, I bet them instruments are worth some money too." So I went back, <laughs> <laughs> I went back and I got them for some trumpets. I, I stole some trumpets that time, and so then a few months later, I went back. Well, how many on. how many trumpets did you take? Two of them I got. Like, it was a brass one, and then it was a silver-plated one. And they were worth $10,000. Shut the fuck up. Who would you yes. sell them to? Oh, pawn shops. I mean, dumb shit. <laughs> How much did they give you for them? Okay, I, like a few hundred dollars okay. each time I went. Right. So the tools the tools I kind of sold here and there and, and got, you know, I made a lot of money off tools. So then I, I, I went there one time. It was right before the Christmas break. And um, just, I think it was 2009. And, um... And I went to Christmas break, and I just, I had these bow cutters in my jogging pants, and I walk in the, the door, and now this class is going on, people are going down the hallways, and I pop open three lockers, and I get this violin, this PA system, this little amp, and, uh, and I, I, you know, I struck out. And um, so, I came, about a week later. Wait, what do you mean, wait, 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 what do you mean you struck out? I left, I left. Okay, with, okay, with the, I'm with, with you. With the instruments. So, I just went and pawned them. And so about a week later, I was at my, my girl's house, and we was, you know, she was waking up, going to work, drinking some coffee. She left the room to go brush her teeth, and I'm watching the news, and they're like, the violin bandit is on video, and I'm thinking, oh, shit, they're about to show my face on the news. And uh, anyways, they didn't show an angle, uh, you know, they didn't really catch me. They didn't show my face on the news, so I didn't think they got me. So... I got so wait, from, it was it was a whole story where this violin. Right. What was the violin? Was it some special violin? Okay, yeah, the violin was like a hundred something years old. It had been passed down in this Chinese girl's family for years, and she brought it with her to America to play violin at LSU, and she was one of the top violinists in the nation. And she came back from a Christmas break and didn't have a violin. And she wasn't expecting some dude who sticks no. crystal meth up his ass <laughs> to wind up stealing the, the prized violin. <laughs> Right. right. Yeah. No, not at all. So, um, they had a guy. They actually had a guy call in to the to the uh, news news station. Said, "Look, I want you to take that girl to a music store. I want her to buy any violin she wants." She went and bought her a twenty five thousand dollars Stradivarius. I mean, she got a brand new one. Okay. So, if you fast forward now a year from that point, 
is when they finally all caught it. Because, see, I had moved to New Orleans, and, and I was doing all right. I wasn't clean, but I wasn't stealing anymore. So we're saying a year had gone by yes. since you stole the yes. violin. And you can't possibly imagine getting busted for taking that violin. It was over in your head, right? Right. In my head, it was over, big dog. It was over. And so what so, happened? Well, um, I was on probation because I got caught with a meth lab, which is a different story. Um, wait, you got caught with a meth lab? Yeah, but man, we can't go into that. But did you just say, wait, did you just say you were doing all right and you were barely using except okay. for the fact that you had uh, a meth lab? If, if I gave you the timeline, I stole the violin in, in, in December of 09, right? Yeah. I got caught with a meth lab in January of 2010. I got out of jail that May or June. So... I got out of jail, got on probation, and I think uh, I think it was uh, I don't know, I forget when it was when I got called. But I had been out of jail and already back on probation, doing all right when I got busted for the violin. Yeah, there's a lot of shit going How on. How did they find out? Well, they, they when they when when you pawn something, they go to resell it, right? right. So when they got this violin and had those serial numbers on it, so they got a guy that researches these things and. The guy went to research and, it, and he found the Crime Stoppers, uh, you know, uh, the art article on it. And so, you know, he, he sent pictures and they verified that it was hers. And uh, and uh, they come and pick me up in New Orleans and uh, arrested me at my job. And uh, they had a uh, man. They brought me straight to the press conference. It was it was embarrassing, dude. It was it was bad. Yeah, I was shocked. Wow. That's a crazy story. That's crazy, dude. What do you what do you call it when you stick meth up your butt? What's it called? <laughs> I guess you call it plugging. You call it plugging <laughs> or boofing. Some people call it. Boofing. Yeah, boofing. <laughs> sure. What was what, and what did what did Chris would call it? Hooping the shooter, but you wouldn't be oh, hooping. You wouldn't be hooping the meth. Right? Well, would no, you be you, hooping it? Hooping the shooters when you put the needle in your ass, isn't it? Right, but that was like holding yeah. the needle so you could shoot yeah. up later. It wasn't like getting high like that. That's the be- yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, that's great. So, so this episode, wow. this episode of Dopey, we open with this song, and I didn't get to thank him. This guy Jake, the dude who does from West Virginia, who did that good so bad on the banjo. You know that guy, right? Yeah, I remember that. Hell yeah! And he wrote a little tune about Dopey, and it's it's beautiful. And uh, we're going to open the show, so it already played. But um, okay. but he mentions you, and he mentions uh, he mentions some some characters on the show, and uh, it's beautiful. And um, I'm just psyched you're fucking you're on your way to do your thing, and like right. and you know I'm I'm excited for you, Jeremy. You know, and I wish you the fucking best. You know, thank you, man. I appreciate it. I definitely do. And uh, good luck to the Dopey Nation. Stay strong. Definitely, I'll be thinking of y'all. And when you get your privileges back. You drop me a fucking line and you let me know how you're doing. I will, man. I definitely will. Thank you. And uh, it's always great to, you know, I don't know. The, one of the coolest things about Dopey is just to be in touch with people. And right. uh, and I've always loved being in touch with you. And you've always provided the show with some fucking amazing stories. <laughs> and, and I know that people really like, um, they relate to you and they, they love to hear from you. And I love that. So I just want to thank yeah. you. And, yeah. um, and right on. That's awesome. That's awesome. Appreciate it, Dave, man. Take care, buddy. Jeremy, be in touch, all right? Let me know what the fuck happens. I will, man. Take care, man. You too. All right. Bye. Bye. So I think that was a very important segment with Jeremy Turner. I think that's really what what Dopey is supposed to be about. You know, Jeremy is, uh, he knows he's at the end of the rope with this thing, and he wants to get help, and he admitted he needed help, and he actually is taking the next action to go to fucking treatment and deal with his situation. 
And I know that there's a bunch of you guys listening who uh, might be on the fence about doing it for yourself. But just know that all you have to do is make the decision and then you need to make a phone call and you need to follow through and you can make your life a little bit better. So here we go. Dopey voicemail. Uh, We've heard a lot of recovery. We've heard the father's opinion. And my dad, as much as he always wants to come on Dopey, he's too fucking sick to come on. I I went home the other day uh, to his house and he was like, and he hit me with the same thing. You don't, he he sounds like he's dying. He's like, you don't look too good. I'm like, dad, you sound like you're dying. He's like, I'm okay, but you don't, I said, I said, how about if you say, I said, dad, you know how angry it gets me when you say you don't look good? He says, well, you don't. And I said, well, how about this? I don't want to get angry at you because if I get angry at you, you think I'm using. So how about this? Why don't you say, David? It looks like you're working too hard. And he smiled like super big. And he was like, that's very smart, David. I'll make you an offer you can't refuse. And um, and I actually had some Dominican chicken soup. They call it Sancocho. And I gave him the Dominican chicken soup. And simultaneously, he was cooking his own chicken soup. So I took the Dominican chicken soup back. And I mixed it with the Jewish chicken soup. And I had the ultimate hybrid of cultural cold remedies while my dad uh, suffered with his cold. And that's a little story. Now, here is uh, the dopey voicemail of the week. It's from this guy, Stephen. It's very debaucherous uh, and, and very dopey. So check it out. He's from Baltimore. Hey, what's up, Dave? What's up, Dopey Nation? This is Stephen calling from Atlanta, Georgia, uh, originally from just outside of Baltimore. And uh, love the show, love the dopey voicemails, so figured I would uh, go ahead and contribute one. So it was probably my third or fourth time in treatment. Uh, I had made it through detox, and uh, all of a sudden my libido that had been stifled and stuffed down by shooting massive amounts of heroin for so long woke up with a vengeance and wound up getting me into some trouble with one of the female patients. And we got caught. And uh, both of us were politely asked to leave. And uh, mind you, it's about 11 o'clock at night when this happened. Um, And there was no way that I was going to be calling my parents, uh, letting them know what had happened or anything. And I knew I still had uh, probably a couple hundred dollars in my bank account, uh, which was very unusual. But for whatever reason, I had some money. So uh, I said, fuck it. They said, we have a driver that'll take you anywhere that you want to go, but you can't stay here. And uh, I was in some treatment center in like Western Maryland. And I said, uh, take me to West Baltimore. And they were like, all right. So I get in the car with this old man who was like a driver for the rehab. And we made the trip. It was like an hour, hour and a half down to the city. And uh, I had him drop me off in Edmondson Village, which is um Basically, it's like the wire. Uh, I mean, it was, you know, open-air drug markets and corner boys and all that good stuff. And, uh, you know, that was my spot. So I had him drop me off in Edmondson Village. It's after midnight by this point. And I got my backpack slung over my shoulder and managed to find an ATM and get the last of the money out of my bank account. And I'm on the hunt. So I'm looking around. There's not really much going on. It's pretty late. And uh, I come across this woman... And, 
you know, kind of my MO was always like if I was ever in a new spot or a new part of town and I didn't really know the score, a uh, good place to start is usually to uh, talk to a prostitute because chances are they know exactly where the good shit is and, uh, you know, I feel less threatened uh, dealing with a woman on the streets of West Baltimore at 1 o'clock in the morning than uh, some random strange guy. So I meet this girl. We start talking. Tell her I'm looking for dope. Uh, she's all about it. She says, yeah, no problem. I can tell I got the hookup. Uh, I follow her for a couple blocks. She ducks off in the alley, comes back with a couple pills of dope. And, uh, she says, come on, follow me back to my spot and we can go get high. So we go back to her spot and her man, I guess, boyfriend, husband, whatever, uh, this dude named Billy was there and we came in, we all got high. Everything was cool. Very pleasant. Um, we shot up the dope, and then uh, all of a sudden, uh, I start getting this real fucking weird vibe from Billy. Like, he is just not feeling the fact that I am in his house this late at night. I think in his mind that I was, like, tricking with his girlfriend, which he obviously didn't like. Uh, that was not the case, but there was really no talking to him about it, and things just got weird, and I was kind of like, maybe I should get the fuck out of here. And so I said, I'm going to go, and there she was, uh, the woman, her name was Tammy, was like, well, where are you going to go? Didn't really have an answer, and she said, well, come on, you can stay at my girl's house. I'll take you down there, and we went a couple blocks down to a friend of hers uh, who I assume was another prostitute, um, and she knocked on the door. She was still up, let me in the house, and did a little introduction. I still had some dope, uh, so obviously I was welcome. And I went to this woman's house, and it was basically she was squatting in an abandoned house. I'm pretty sure Billy and Tammy were too, uh, but that's another story. So uh, I come into this woman's house, and there's no electricity, no running water, this abandoned row home in West Baltimore, and she's got two kids, and her kids are like probably nine and twelve, something like. Oh, definitely old enough to like be aware of what the fuck was going on and, and were definitely giving me the stink eye and didn't seem to be thrilled that some stranger was in their mom's house, probably again. Um, so I go inside, Tammy leaves, her and I sit down, we do some more dope. I'm feeling pretty good at this point and I'm ready to just kind of nod off and go to sleep for the night. And uh, she says that she's got to go out. I'm assuming she's probably got to go turn some tricks and get some more money or whatever she's going to do, but it's like 3 o'clock in the morning by this point, so I can't imagine why else she's going out. And she leaves me alone in this row home with her two kids, who are still awake. And uh, I'm high as shit. I've you know been My body's completely clean, so I'm fucking nodding off. High as shit. There's candles all over the place. It's really fucking weird. And uh, the kids kind of you know disappear and go to bed or whatever, and eventually I fall asleep. And I wake up to, uh, so like I'm in, I'm on the top floor, I'm kind of in this broken recliner, like laying back, just nodded off. And I wake up to the sound of the creaking of the floorboards, footsteps in the room, and I'm awake. And once I put together exactly where I am and, <clears throat> and what's going on, because mind you, I was fucked up out of my mind when I fell asleep, um... I realize that, like, there's somebody else in the room with me, and I can barely see the silhouette of a very large man uh, through, like, the street lights and the moon coming in through the window, and, like, just a little bit, I can tell somebody's in the room, and immediately I panic. So I don't move. I try to be real quiet, and this dude is walking around, like, bumping into things, and, uh, 
I'm fucking terrified, dude. I'm in my mind, like I'm about to get fucking got. This was my first like real experience, um, kind of actually being on the streets and not just driving into the hood to cop drugs and then leave. Uh, so I'm terrified, dude. I am fucking shook. And, uh, eventually, uh, he starts flickering a lighter and he lights a couple candles and he turns and he sees me laying in this fucking chair and he jumps and I'm fucking, I jump, I'm terrified. And, uh, he comes walking over and he leans in real close and I'm thinking this dude's going to fucking stab me, cut my throat. I don't know. And, uh, he just says, Hey man, you want to smoke some crack? And, uh, immediately I said, Absolutely. And uh, it turned out, uh, I found out the next day that this was, the woman I was staying with, her name was Martha, I think, and this was like her brother. And he was just coming in in the middle of the night to get fucking high in her abandoned spot. And uh, me and her brother ended up smoking crack for the next, I don't know, four, five, six hours till after the sun came up um, out of a broken car antenna. Uh, it was a fucking mess, dude. Like I did, we didn't have a stem. None of those doors are open. And, uh, he had this metal broken car antenna and, uh, you know, there's no electricity. So there's candles It's not well lit. <clears throat> We're trying to pass this thing back and forth, but we both want another hit so bad that we can't wait until it cools off. Like I ended up with these huge blisters on my fucking fingers, on my fucking mouth from just trying to pass and, and hit this fucking thing while it was still like this glowing hot piece of metal. Uh, and this is dude, this is within like seven, six, seven hours of getting out of treatment. And I'm like on skid row already. Um, I think eventually I picked up the phone, called mom and dad, pulled the ripcord, so to speak, and was able to like go home, get a shower and, and consider my options. Uh, eventually, uh, when I would make that call, uh, they just wouldn't answer. Like there was no more fucking, uh, ripcord for Steve. And I would come to spend, a lot longer stretches uh, out there on the street living that way. Uh, but those are stories for another day. Uh, as of today, uh, I'm working on uh, just under 10 months clean and sober. Um, been in and out of this thing for probably 16 years or so. Uh, so, man, I love the show. I love what y'all are doing. And uh, keep it up, man. And toodles. All right, thank you, Stephen. I love that voicemail. I love I love just about everything about that voicemail. It really takes me back to burning my hands and my lips on meth pipes and fucking being in bad places late at night. I would always freak out if I had a lot of money or if I if I got money before I knew where I was going to cop when it was like that danger, like that you could, I could get robbed or like that. You know, maybe you're going to get beat. Maybe you're going to lose, you know, your money and not get good dope. Or, but the the worst thing is the idea that somebody's going to rob you or, or hurt you. And it's crazy that with all the the copping that I used to do, that I never got robbed like that. I mean, I got beat and I got like fake drugs, or somebody would take my money and disappear, but I never got attacked, uh, which was miraculous considering I was always copping uh, in scary neighborhoods in Brooklyn or the Lower East Side or downtown LA. And, and I guess, you know, I was lucky and violence wasn't a part of the shit that happened to me. Um, I was talking this morning with this guy who's a dopey nation guy and we were talking about cravings and stuff. And I was saying to him how, uh, how I don't want to get high. You know what I mean? And, um, and he was like, really? And I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I said, I, I might want to smoke weed once in a while because I smell weed all the time and I love how weed smells, but I, I don't want to do heroin 
um, I really don't. Like, I feel like if I did heroin, it would just make me sick. Like, I would get nauseous. I would have to figure out a way to reacclimate myself to the drugs. But I kind of then I, I and I felt fine with that answer. And I said the same thing about pills, and I felt fine with that answer. But during the day, I just kept looking back on it and imagining getting high. And um, and the truth is, and it's something I don't talk about on Dopey very often, because I'm very, very happy uh, in sobriety. But the truth is that um, I loved getting high. Uh, I remember when I would come home from work, even when I was separated from my family, I would come home from work, and I had money, and I'd have dope. And um, I would like get high on dope, and I felt like I was on top of the world and I would like watch a TV show or eat something sweet and I felt like I was on top of the world. But the thing about it is that's just a moment and the next moment is going to be bad. And the ne- and as soon as you run out of money, it's going to be bad. And as soon as you have a, a tolerance, it's going to be bad. Because the, the reality is you can get high, but you can never sustain getting high. It's bullshit. You know, so like that's that's the answer to that question of, of like why I don't have cravings. It's because there's no chance that I could ever sustain a lifestyle of getting high. And um, it was just something I was thinking about because like, yes, I love to get high. Yes, I love to be sober. But that's really the issue is it's impossible to sustain such a thing as a as a heroin habit or even a pill habit. I, I could I just would take too many and, and they wouldn't work. And, and and I would never feel the actual high of my life. Um, I just think it's worth talking about it because we can preach recovery and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but I am an addict and I used to love taking drugs. And I'm sure a lot of you guys can relate to that or maybe you can't. But uh, I just wanted to say that and get it off of my chest or my mind or whatever. And here's a little email I just got from, uh, we'll call her Deanne in Texas. She writes, Dear Dave, I learned about your podcast while I was listening to This American Life. As soon as I heard the story, I downloaded episodes of your show and I am hooked. I switched back and forth between the latest episodes and the oldest episodes. The episodes with Chris are hysterical and the new episodes are poignant. Great company and often still hysterical. I love it when Alan makes an appearance. Unfortunately, he's too sick tonight to make an appearance. But anyway, I have been sober seven years, and while I have worked my way back into normal life and rejoined the living and the functioning regular humans, I stay extremely close to my roots as an addict alcoholic. I attend meetings every single day. I use the program all day long. That may sound burdensome to some people, but for me, it is a relief. The real, easier, and softer way. Your podcast feels like home. No one understands the lengths we will go to for the high, and we will do the dumbest shit to achieve even five minutes of getting high or drunk or whatever. Your podcast is a completely safe place to hear and tell the stories. It's like being in the rooms where we can laugh at all the dumb shit because we are so relieved to be living on the other side. I wasn't laughing when I was in it, but I can now. Your show is comfort for people like me. I am a person that lives a life beyond my wildest dreams because of my sobriety and a person that never wants to forget how I got here. Two lives in one lifetime. Thank you. I've turned some friends onto the show. We are grateful for your dedication and so sorry for your losses. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and toodles for Chris. Best day. Deanne in Texas. I love that email. 
It's a beautiful, beautiful email. I love the idea that Dopey is home for people. And, uh, and I love the idea of two lives in one lifetime. I, I often feel like it's a million lives in one lifetime, just infinite lives. And, and it's crazy. Now, before we go, I just want to read. So thank you, Deanne. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful email. I want to read a couple of, uh, reviews before we go. Gotten a ton of great reviews and, uh, I'm going to read some. There was a bad one recently. I got to find the bad one. Uh, I don't know. I can't find the bad one. Here's a good one. It is from, where is it from? Um, Better Than Rehab by Dr. Zpep. Five stars. I recently got into listening to Dave and Chris. I was instantly in love with the two of them. I struggle with addiction, and it helps to have something to laugh about. Dave, I'm so sorry about Chris. Although I'm not religious, my heart goes out to all of you guys. Much love and thanks for the wonderful show. Thank you. That's nice. Yeah, I listen to the old episodes and it makes me crazy. Uh, I miss Chris a lot. Uh, It would be so much better if he hadn't died, obviously. It just seems like such a stupid thing to say. Uh, I miss him and Todd every day. and it's. uh, But it's the reality of this thing that that drugs kill you. And that... uh, and I say this all the time. The one thing that really killed Chris was he that he couldn't be honest, which is uh, very sad. And uh, I love Chris, and uh, I totally miss him. Uh, one more. One more review before we go. I like this one. I am the dopey equivalent. Uh, this, is from the, this is from UC Pete, the realest and funniest podcast out there. Five stars. I'm the dopey equivalent of a touchhead. The grateful, uh, the Grateful Dead fans that hopped on the train late in the game when the Touch of Grey music video came out. I started listening after hearing about Dopey on This American Life. It's saddening and daunting to know that Chris is dead while I listened back from the beginning. I'm on episode 106 now after starting the earliest available episode, number 30. Now, you guys, if you're listening to Dopey and you never listened to episodes before number 30, just go to either the Podbean app or go to dopeypodcast.com. All the episodes except for episodes 6, 8, 10, and 12 are there. On iTunes, for some reason, it starts at 30. But if you want to hear the episodes before 30, go to dopeypodcast.com or to Podbean. Anyway, especially when the jokes foreshadowing his inevitable relapse and death littered throughout the early episodes. Yeah, that's a very sad fact. While not afflicted, uh, while not afflicted, and certainly not to the degree that Dave and Chris and others are, this show has been a revelation for me and has made me more mindful of my behavior and the behavior of friends and family when it comes to drugs and alcohol. It's no surprise how many folks have been helped by the catharsis, catharsis and laughs this show provides for those in need. I've got some extremely dopey stories, some of my own, others about friends, but I'll save those for when I've caught up to real time. Uh, Rest in peace, Chris and Todd, and I trust Dave is staying strong and hope that the show is still going strong now. I also hope that reading fan voice memos is still a thing when I reach the present episodes, as I've got some funny ones to share. Thanks, Dopey Pete. Thanks, Pete. Yeah, everybody, send in a fucking voicemail. Leave a review. Chris loved reviews on iTunes. Don't leave bad reviews. They destroy my world. And uh, send in a song. Send in some art. Follow us on Instagram. Follow us on Reddit. There's a crazy fight in the Reddit world between New York Upstate Engineer and Applebottom. I think Applebottom just left Reddit, which breaks my heart. But only uh, dopey Redditors know what I'm talking about. 
I just want to thank uh, David Chef for finally coming on. I want to thank uh, the great Jeremy Turner and wish him the best of luck at Aloe. I want to thank Stephen for the voicemail, Pete for the review, Deanne for the Wicked Fire email. I want to thank Jake for that sick uh, tune on into the Dopey Show at the head of the show if you're feeling high or feeling low. I want to thank everybody in the Dopey Nation for being a part of the show. You guys know who you are. Oh, yes. I want to give a shout out to James in England. Fucking James in England is like this guy, alcoholic in recovery. He writes me every once in a while, and he always starts with Evening Dave. And I just like hearing from James, so I want to give him a that shout out. I want to give Matt a shout out and some guy called Juice a shout out. I think that was his name, right, Matt? If I'm wrong, write me an email because I can't find yours. Write me an email and let me know the proper shout out. Everybody else, you guys know who you are. Uh, stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad. Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad. I wanna be good, so bad. Bad desires, all I ever had. And I wanna take a ride up in the sky. Watch this airplane just pass me by. And I wanna see a Lear jetliner take a dive. Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive. But I wanna be good so bad. Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad. I wanna be good so bad. Bad desires all I ever had. And my shadow's getting smaller, smaller. City far behind. I'll take the high road, however far it winds, because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find. And I wanna be good so bad. Wanna be good so bad, so bad. I wanna be good so bad. Bad desires all I ever had. Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And these suckers make me mad And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had 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 And these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had